Chronicles Revisited podcast, Episode 6, Osborne's Last Stand, The Software Look and Feel Wars. Welcome to the Chronicles Revisited podcast. I'm S.M. Oliva. I write the blog Computer Chronicles Revisited, which reviews the people and products featured on the PBS series that aired between 1983 and 2002. In this podcast, I focus on individual stories that I've previously featured on the blog. In this episode, I'm looking at Adam Osborne, the entrepreneur who first made a name for himself in the 1970s as an author and publisher of computer books. After selling his publishing business to McGraw-Hill, a longtime Computer Chronicles sponsor, Osborne went on to start two more companies. The first, Osborne Computer Corporation, created the Osborne One, an all-in-one microcomputer based on Gary Kildall's CPM operating system. Osborne Computer enjoyed a brief period of success before its founder's failings and the debut of the IBM personal computer led to an equally quick demise. Undeterred, Osborne went on to start his final business, Paperback Software International, which also began with much hype and promise before succumbing to a drawn-out decline in what became a landmark lawsuit on the question of copywriting the look and feel of computer software. Before getting to that, however, let's talk about the man himself. Adam Osborne was born in 1939 to British parents living in Thailand. Osborne's father taught history in Bangkok. The family was vacationing in the Kashmir region of India when the Empire of Japan attacked Pearl Harbor in 1941, plunging most of Southeast Asia into World War II. Osborne's father was stranded in Bangkok for the duration of the conflict, while Adam remained with his mother in India. After the war, the Osbournes returned to England, where Adam attended government schools and later earned a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering from the University of Birmingham. In the early 1960s, Osborne moved to the United States to marry his American girlfriend. Osborne worked a number of jobs on the East Coast that failed to pan out into a satisfactory career. So like most people stuck in a rut, he went back to school, enrolling at the University of Delaware, where he earned his master's and PhD degrees in chemical engineering. After completing his doctorate, Osborne relocated to the West Coast in 1968 and took a job with Shell Oil's office in Emeryville, California, where he stayed for three years. After Shell decided to relocate the office to Texas, Osborne decided it was time to strike out on his own. While he was never that happy being a chemical engineer, he did enjoy writing, and he had gained experience working with computers while writing his thesis at Delaware, so he became a freelance technical writer. Osborne's big break came in 1972, when Southern Automation, a mini-computer manufacturer, hired him to write its user manuals. Osborne later expanded one of these manuals, The Value of Power, into a standalone book called An Introduction to Microcomputers. Osborne later said that when he failed to find a publisher for his book, he decided to publish it himself through his consulting firm, Osborne & Associates. By 1976, Osborne had sold over 20,000 books, primarily to universities who used it as a text to introduce students to computer science. Osborne used his self-publishing success to promote his own profile as a microcomputer consultant and pundit. He became a popular speaker and columnist in the late 1970s, and his company would go on to publish roughly 40 books, including 12 by Osborne himself. In 1979, McGraw-Hill purchased Osborne & Associates outright. The terms were never publicly disclosed, but some reports estimated that Osborne made at least $3 million on the deal. And while Osborne agreed to a three-year management contract to continue running the newly rechristened Osborne-McGraw-Hill, 
He left after only about 18 months. Not surprisingly, Adam Osborne had little interest in working for anyone but himself. He used $100,000 from the proceeds of the McGraw-Hill sale to finance his next and most famous business venture, Osborne Computer Corporation, or OCC. OCC's first product was the Osborne One microcomputer, which was designed by Lee Felsenstein based on a sketch from Adam Osborne. The machine's gimmick was that it would be an all-in-one portable computer with a built-in 5-inch monochrome display. Portable, of course, was a relative term, as the finished machine weighed nearly 11 kilograms. OCC also bundled a good deal of software with the Osborne One, including Microsoft Basic, WordStar, and a spreadsheet program. Osborne convinced the software vendors to give him an unlimited license by offering them stock in his new company. The combined hardware and software package initially retailed for $1,795, which was almost half the cost of an Apple II with a similar configuration. In fact, Steve Jobs reportedly told an Osborne employee working the company's booth at the 1981 West Coast Computer Fair, quote, tell Adam he's an asshole, unquote. And as I noted in a previous podcast, longtime Computer Chronicles contributor George Morrow admitted that he copied Osborne's approach to bundling software with hardware when creating his own micro-decision computers. At least initially, Morrow had good reason to emulate Osborne. In 1981, Osborne sold 8,001 Osborne One computers. In 1982, that figure jumped to 110,000. In July 1982, Adam Osborne predicted that his company would soon hit $100 million in annual sales. By this point, he'd also attracted significant interest from venture capital, raising somewhere between $34 and $40 million in private funds. One market analyst, Chris Christensen, predicted that OCC would, would see consistent 80% annual growth for the rest of the 1980s. Well, that didn't happen. In September 1983, Osborne Computer Corporation filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. There were a number of reasons. Osborne's inexperience in running a rapidly growing company, competition from other firms entering the portable micro-market, and of course the debut of the IBM personal computer. For his part, Osborne blamed the company's demise on the man he hired to run the business, former Consolidated Foods president Robert Jonick. True to his roots, Osborne self-published a book outlining what he claimed was Jonick's mismanagement. Jonick dismissed the book as the work of a third-rate novelist, and Osborne's excuses didn't convince many of his former champions. Chris Christensen, the same market analyst who only a year earlier predicted unlimited growth for OCC, now said that Adam Osborne had completely misjudged the market. OCC stumbled along for a couple of more years under bankruptcy before finally closing its doors in 1985. But Adam Osborne quickly moved on to his third and final startup, Paperback Software International. Actually, it had a couple of different names before launch. In late September 1983, just a few days after Osborne Computer filed for bankruptcy, Adam Osborne incorporated a California company called EVE Computer Corporation. In January 1984, Osborne changed the name to Software Seed Capital Corporation. Two months later, in March 1984, he publicly launched the new business under the final name, Paperback Software International. At the 1984 West Coast Computer Fair, Osborne outlined the agenda for the new company. He said Paperback Software would use a hybrid approach to software marketing. Basically, Paperback would serve as a software publisher rather than a developer, a business model more comfortable to someone with Osborne's background in book publishing. By not taking on software development costs himself, Osborne said PSI would be able to enter the market 
with competitive products at a lower price point. He also saw bookstores as the main retail outlet for his software. Adam Osborne further elaborated on his approach in a 1987 Computer Chronicles appearance, where he demonstrated one of Paperback's first products, VP Planner. Adam, you've shown us a lot of powerful features of VP Planner from the uh, user's point of view. One very powerful feature is the price. It's only about $100. How can you sell this for $100 when the competing products uh, seeming to have the same thing are $500? Well, we do it a completely different way. You see, my belief is the best programmers work for themselves. They don't work for other companies. We have developed none of this software. Outside authors bring it all to us. We write the manual. We help them make it you know, the interface right, but then we pay them a royalty which they use in order to keep updating and improving the software in the future. The result is we run our company on 35 people. They have a thousand. <laughs> and that's the difference in price. When Stuart Chaffee mentioned competitors charging $500, he was referring to Lotus 123, then the dominant computer spreadsheet program for the PC platform. Osborne was careful to try and distinguish VP Planner from 123 on the air. His software was really a database manager that included a Lotus-style spreadsheet as the user interface. That is to say, you would use Planner to manage multiple spreadsheets at the same time. But there was no mistaking that he copied large elements of the UI from 123. The VP Planner manual itself stated the program was, quote, designed to work like Lotus 123 release 1A keystroke for keystroke, unquote. And keystrokes mattered quite a lot when it came to 123. The entire user interface was driven by a series of nested keyboard commands. This often required the user to memorize lengthy strings of keystrokes just to perform basic tasks. Stuart Chaffee actually commented on this Byzantine labyrinth when discussing 123 in a random access news item. Lotus has formally introduced its much-touted HAL interface for 123. HAL lets you communicate with Lotus in plain English so that you can now command Lotus to graph column 3 as a pie chart. Rather than hitting gtpab6.b9, return xa6.9return v. Now, Osborne didn't set out to make a 123 clone, at least not at first. The software that would become VP Planner began its development in January 1982, a year before Lotus released its spreadsheet. The original project was known as FIPS, which stood for Financial Information and Planning Systems. The developer behind FIPS was James Stevenson. Like the founders of Lotus, Stevenson was looking to develop a new spreadsheet to replace the then-market leader, VisiCalc. After about a year of development, Stevenson had developed a working prototype of FIPS, which used a completely different menu system than either VisiCalc or 123. And it's important to note here that 123 did borrow heavily from VisiCalc for the UI, largely because Lotus founder Mitchell Kapoor previously worked for the company that published VisiCalc. Later, after 123 became dominant, Lotus acquired the rights to VisiCalc outright. In any event, Stevenson's FIPS started out as its own program and not an attempt to create a cheap 123 clone. That changed after Stevenson sold the publishing rights to FIPS to paperback software. Adam Osborne decided that his newly acquired product would not be a commercial success unless it was compatible with 123. So Stevenson overhauled his UI completely to ensure that any 123 commands and macros would work the same under his program, which Osborne renamed VP Planner. Lotus was not flattered by the imitation. In January 1987, a few weeks before Osborne appeared on Computer Chronicles to promote VP Planner, Lotus sued paperback software for copyright infringement. Lotus also sued a second company, Mosaic Software, 
which published its own 123 clone, brazenly called The Twin. Wendy Woods spoke to Mosaic founder Richard Bezging and intellectual property lawyer Tim Hale for this report on the early stages of the litigation. While a program's source code is clearly protected by law, the elusive look and feel of a screen display is a relatively new aspect of software protection and open to sharp disagreement. The idea is that a lot of the functionality that people need, you cannot patent or copyright. Uh, and further, a lot of the user interface words and things uh, ought to be available to, to many people, uh, especially that very common words are used in many cases. Take a simple book, any book that you have. Well, those are all words that are in the English language, and in that sense, they're not original. What becomes original is the manner in which the, the developer puts them together, the way that he organizes them or orders them or sequences them. That's what gets protected by copyright law. A recent case involving communication software could have a significant impact on future look and feel cases. DCA, which owns the Crosstalk program, sued the SoftClone company for its mirror communications package. The court ruled in favor of the plaintiff. Given that the court in that case held that essentially one key screen was enough to constitute copyrightable material and found that the defendants had infringed that one key screen, that means that cloning user interfaces is going to be extremely suspect in the future. One of the many difficulties encountered by software developers is the overwhelming dominance of a handful of programs, which some companies view as de facto standards. And when you go into a spreadsheet market, you realize that there is primarily one customer that dominates the market, and that is Lotus. They probably have approximately 60 to 80 percent of the marketplace. Uh, so the already existing de facto standards in the marketplace uh, make it literally impossible for anybody to enter that marketplace uh, or do anything constructive. All sides agree, for different reasons, that the outcome of these cases will have a major impact on the future of original software. Assume what's going to happen if, in the worst-case scenario, Lotus wins. Absolutely, it's going to be chaos. I mean, people are going to start doing things just for the sake of being different. They're going to make it different, uh, and, and it's going to be incredibly hard for any user to do anything with any of these programs. Lotus acted at a time when software look and feel lawsuits were on the rise. In October 1986, a federal judge in Northern California ruled in favor of Broderbund software in a copyright infringement case against Unison World. Broderbund published a home desktop publishing program called The Print Shop, which it had licensed from the original authors, David Balsam and Martin Kahn. Broderbund released Print Shop in May 1984 for the Apple II at a retail price of $50. Broderbund later entered into discussions with Unison to develop a conversion of Print Shop for the Japanese computer market. Unison's president was also interested in porting the software to the IBM PC, something that Broderbund's own programmers had been unable to accomplish. Broderbund initially agreed to give Unison the chance to do the IBM port. Unison then instructed its programmer to create an exact reproduction of the Apple II program on the PC. But during development, talks between Broderbund and Unison broke down. Rather than abandon the project, 
Unison told the programmer to keep working on an enhanced version of the print shop that it would release without Broderbund's permission. But this enhanced version still contained parts of the print shop menu screens that were already copied during the license negotiation process. Unison released its finished product under the name Printmaster in March 1985, prompting Broderbund to sue. U.S. District Judge William H. Oreck Jr., a former U.S. Assistant Attorney General, ruled that Unison had in fact infringed on Broderbund's copyright for the audiovisual displays of the computer program known as the print shop. Oreck noted that Unison's copying wasn't limited to just the basic rules and instructions of Broderbund's software. Rather, Unison also copied the artwork, layout, and sequence of the print shop screens, which taken as a whole provided a significant element of entertainment for the user, according to Oreck. While that's all good and well for a program used for creative purposes, what about business application software? Wendy Woods mentioned the DCA crosstalk litigation in her report. This was a March 1987 decision from another federal court in Atlanta. In the early 1980s, a Georgia company called MicroStuff, no relation to George Morrow's MicroStuff, developed a data communications program called Crosstalk. A Florida company, Fortech Development, created a clone of Crosstalk in 1985, which it distributed under the name Mirror through a subsidiary called Soft Clone Distributing Corporation. Digital Communications Associates, or DCA, which acquired MicroStuff and Crosstalk in 1986, sued SoftClone for copyright infringement, based on Mirror using the same main menu design as Crosstalk. U.S. District Judge William O'Kelly agreed with DCA that there was copyright infringement and issued an injunction against SoftClone. In his ruling, O'Kelly said that he didn't want to go as far as Judge Oreck did in the earlier Broderbund case. Oreck found that the screens displayed by a software program were always protected by copyright. O'Kelly said that not all screen displays were, were copies or reproductions of the literary or substantive content of computer programs. Nevertheless, he found that DCA did have a valid copyright in the design of its status screen or main menu. Neither the Broderbund nor the DCA decisions established any nationwide binding precedent, but they sent a strong signal that the courts would take claims of copyright in software menus seriously. Paperback Software and Mosaic still decided to take their chances and fight Lotus's copyright lawsuits in court. Of course, that wasn't a quick or cheap process. It took nearly three years for the cases to reach trial. In February 1990, U.S. District Judge Robert Keaton held a bench trial on the issue of whether or not Paperback and Mosaic infringed Lotus's copyrights in the 123 menu system. The parties chose to have Keaton try the case without a jury. The judge issued his ruling in June 1990. And perhaps not surprisingly, given the outcomes in Broderbund and DCA, Keaton ruled in favor of Lotus. Keaton flat-out rejected Paperback's position that the user interface of 123 was purely functional and therefore not protected by copyright. To the contrary, Keaton said that developing the concepts behind a user interface constituted the bulk of the creative work in developing a computer program, as opposed to writing the actual code. And given that a programmer could theoretically express a menu structure in many, if not an unlimited number of ways, the specific choice of commands in 123's menus were, in his view, an original and non-obvious form of copyrightable expression. Keaton went on to reject Adam Osborne's business justification for creating a 123 workalike in the first place, namely that he had to maintain Lotus compatibility in order to have a competitively viable product. Keaton pointed out that other spreadsheets, notably Microsoft's Excel, which relied on the Macintosh's graphical user interface, were clearly successful despite a lack of Lotus compatibility. 
And in any event, Osborne and Paperback could have taken other steps short of outright copying to make VP Planner more attractive to current 123 users. Keaton initially scheduled a second trial for November 1990 to determine how much in damages both Paperback and Mosaic would have to pay Lotus. But everyone saw the writing on the wall at this point. In October 1990, the parties agreed to a settlement. Paperback Software's insurance company paid Lotus $500,000, and the company pulled all remaining copies of VP Planner from store shelves. Paperback itself ceased operations by 1993. But the end of Paperback was not the end of the software look and feel wars, at least not for Lotus. Four days after Judge Keaton awarded the company victory in the Paperback case, Lotus filed a new lawsuit against Borland International, the developer of Quattro Pro. Judge Keaton also tried the Borland lawsuit. And just as he had done in June 1990, in July 1992, he issued a judgment in favor of Lotus on essentially the same grounds as his earlier decision. Borland tried to appease Keaton and Lotus by immediately removing the feature in Quattro Pro that actually emulated the 123 menu structure. But Lotus maintained there was still copyright infringement, and Keaton agreed. The judge then scheduled a separate jury trial to determine the extent of Borland's liability. But Borland was quick to appeal Keaton's underlying finding that the 123 menu structure was protected by copyright. Unlike Adam Osborne in paperback software, Borland had the resources to fight back in the appellate court. And that decision proved costly, at least for Lotus. In March 1995, a three-judge panel of the U.S. First Circuit Court of Appeals in Boston reversed Keaton's decision, and in doing so, rejected the whole concept of copywriting menu command structures in the first place. Judge Norman H. Stahl, writing for the First Circuit panel, agreed with Borland that the menu was in fact a method of operation and not a form of copyrightable expression. Stahl said the fact that the Lotus developers might have designed their menu command hierarchy differently did not make their final choices a form of creative expression. After all, the ultimate purpose of the menu was to help users operate the software. The arrangement of the menu was therefore not, as Stahl saw it, an independent creative act. Understandably, Lotus disagreed with Stahl's decision. And it should be noted by this point, in 1995, Lotus was no longer an independent company, but a division of IBM. Lotus appealed the First Circuit's decision to the U.S. Supreme Court. The High Court agreed to take the case and heard oral arguments on January the 8th, 1996. But eight days later, the Supreme Court issued a one-sentence decision. Quote, The judgment of the United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit is affirmed by an equally divided court. Unquote. For reasons that were never explained, Justice John Paul Stevens recused himself from the case, and the remaining justices split four to four. That left the First Circuit's ruling for Borland intact without setting any nationwide precedent. And given that Lotus had already been absorbed into IBM, 123 was well past its prime, and even Borland had gotten out of the spreadsheet business by selling Quattro Pro, the court's non-decision effectively marked the end of the software look and feel wars. As for Adam Osborne, the Lotus litigation and defeat proved to be his last stand in the computer industry. Osborne had actually resigned as paperback's president just before the Lotus trial began in February 1990. He later moved back to India, where he had spent his early years to live with his sister. And after a long period of ill health, Osborne died in March 2003 at the age of 64. And that's all for this episode of the Chronicles Revisited podcast. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the topics discussed in today's episode, there are links in the show notes. You can also visit my website, Computer Chronicles Revisited, at smoliva.blog. That's S-M-O-L-I-V-A dot blog. 
This episode was adapted from a blog post I published in March 2023, and it contains more on the people and products featured on the Computer Chronicles. In the next episode, I'll look at the story of how a pair of unrelated plane crashes that occurred in the 1930s and 1950s respectively ultimately had an impact on the personal computer industry of the 1980s and 1990s. Talk to you then.